0: Hi, I'm Sunny Dean,
1: And I'm Scott Drakeford.
0: And this is the Publishing Radio Podcast. In 2022, we both launched debut novels in the same genre with the same publisher in the same year. But despite having very similar starts, our books, and subsequently each of our careers, went in very
1: different directions. That pattern repeats itself throughout the industry over and over. Why do some books succeed while others seem to be dead on arrival?
0: In this podcast, we aim to answer those questions and many more, along with how to build and maintain an author career.
1: Everyone signing a contract deserves to know what they're really signing up for. In an industry that loves its secrets, we'll be sharing real details from real people. We'll cover the gamut of life as a big five published author, from agents to publishing contracts, finances, and more.
0: Oh, no, thanks thanks for waiting while we sorted out our frantic schedule. No problem.
1: We've had to fit in a, a whole lot more episodes than we had planned at first. <laughs>
0: we were only going to do one a month, so... Oh, wow. This is how many we were going to do in a year.
2: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You guys must have had a crazy past S- yeah. few months S- then. Yeah. Yes.
1: Now we need to actually get some S- writing
0: S- done in the next two months. <laughs>
1: Seriously. Sunny does not do things in halves she just goes man but it's been it's That's been awesome. fantastic welcome to the publishing rodeo podcast we have with us today daniel roman i should probably let you do your own intro so i don't screw it up but you are the associate editor at or an associate editor at winterscoming.net and a short story author is that correct what are what other accolades should we be putting on your name
2: Oh, God, probably no accolades, but associate editor for winteriscoming.net is is definitely the big one and probably the the most relevant one to what we're talking about. I I do also write science fiction and fantasy. I have short stories out the same name, Daniel Roman, written novels and been on submission with a novel, had a novel die on sub. So got a little bit of a, a, a foot in a few different places, but primarily these days I am spending the majority of my time at winterscoming.net, and that's kind of my full-time thing at the moment. And I'm one of our primary contacts for book-related stuff, and we only cover science fiction and fantasy, so I am always trying to stay as keyed into new science fiction and fantasy book releases as possible. And that's me in a nutshell...
0: Could you talk to us about what Winter is Coming, what that website is, how it got started, what it does, kind of your involvement with it and sort of its place in in the
2: book reviewer world? I should preface this by saying I am not a marketing expert. Uh, I I am an editor at the site winteriscoming.net where we review fantasy and science fiction books. We do lists of fantasy and science fiction books. And whatwinteriscoming.net is, is basically a fantasy and science fiction fan site that got its start as a Game of Thrones fan site. So when Game of Thrones was on the air, it was pretty much exclusively Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire, George R. Martin News. And since the uh, since Game of Thrones ended, it's really expanded into more of just a general home for science fiction and fantasy news, especially television and movie news, but we do cover quite a bit of book stuff at this point as well. Um, so we do review shows, we do review um, movies, and we've been pushing more into reviewing books as well. I came onto the site as a freelancer in 2019. Basically, right when Game of Thrones ended, I wrote something on spec that was just, I need to write my feelings out about this, because that series was basically, I got into the books as a teenager so that I would know what my World of Warcraft guild members were talking about when they mentioned Jon Snow and all the nothing he knew, and basically just had a feeling, if I don't write something about this, I'll regret it. So submitted it to a few sites I liked reading, including Winter is Coming, they published it and i just kind of kept writing for them and it in 20 late 2021 i was on sub at the same time as i was freelancing for winter is coming and then they asked me to come on as an associate editor so in terms of our place in the book review space um what i would say to that is we do review books but our it is not our entire model because we're talking more spe- more broadly about the science fiction and fantasy space usually. Um, so book reviews are one of many different types of things we do at the site. Uh, but the, the one through line to the site is they're all science fiction and fantasy things, maybe with the exception of, you know, we talk about like Uhtred, Son of Uhtred uh, from The Last Kingdom and stuff like that too. So sci-fi fantasy and sneaking in the historical fiction when it, is appropriate
1: Utred counts <laughs>
2: yes
0: you probably get more traffic that way to be honest
2: that is I w- without knowing book blog numbers from any specific blogs that is probably true winter is coming as a fairly large site so I I can't I don't think I am really allowed to talk numbers, but like we have millions of people reading the site every month, I think is a pretty safe thing to say. It has been interesting for us to do more book coverage because some of it has gone over better than we thought it would. Because, you know, anytime you break into kind of different spaces, there's always a question of how well it will go over and how things might change but fantasy and sci-fi books are at the root of all the fandoms we talk about so
0: yeah so today we were going to talk to you about marketing media and a a little bit of platform from the, the, the perspective of someone that kind of takes reviews and sees some of the back end of it not as a publisher or as an author but basically the website media blogger side of it you kind of provided some topics for us, which is really, really good. But I guess the first question we were going to ask is how do media people or book bloggers curate lists and choose what to review or which titles to cover?
2: That is a a fantastic question that I am sure a lot of authors are really curious about. I know I was always really curious about that. And I'm going to give what's probably a slightly disappointing answer for this, which is Everyone has a different way of doing it, so there there really are no hard and fast rules for curation beyond the the one golden rule is people can only write what they know about. So the aware what people are aware of it becomes a huge factor there. But I will say for me personally, um, when it comes to. We can talk about lists and reviews kind of as two separate things, but for reviews, a lot of it comes down to timing and schedule. The amount of buzz a book has is definitely a factor, you know, when you think about books where it might maybe... You know, the more buzz there is, the more it might be like folly for a site to not cover a book. So that definitely becomes a factor in the equation. Beyond that, I I think there is a lot of personal reading stuff that, that goes into choosing titles that end up on lists, which feels, I, I hate to say that because it makes it sound like it's just people picking things randomly. And you would hope that people are doing their due diligence, right, to try and curate lists in a thoughtful way that represent kind of the the diversity in the industry at the moment, because I, I do think that the science fiction and fantasy landscape is in a really healthy place right now with the different types of titles that are being produced. But ultimately, every media outlet and ecosystem is going to have slightly different ways of doing things. And it's always fascinating to me to look at other sites lists, because there are there will be releases that I considered like the big release of a given quarter or a given month that isn't on those lists. And then other books that, you know, I wouldn't have even had on my radar which are getting prominent coverage on them the short answer is everyone does it different the long answer is that's hopefully people are doing it in a thoughtful way even if it's different hopefully that makes at least a little bit of sense
1: yeah uh, absolutely i think it absolutely makes sense so one question i have for you and understanding that everybody does it different so you know your answer is is probably relevant just for you. But I am interested to hear what buzz means for you. And, you know, you mentioned due diligence. Basically, I'd love to understand what your sources of information are, because, you know, we've talked to booksellers and they go through publishers catalogs and they have sales reps and whatever else. What are your primary sources of information that you're paying attention to? And, and how do you even find out what books are coming out in an, at any given time?
2: There are, I would say, probably two. There are probably three main things that I pay attention to when it comes to figuring out books for lists, which I've been doing uh, this a lot this year, because this year, Winter is Coming, started doing uh, a list every month, which we've never done before. Um, that was something I kind of pushed for this year and said, because we couldn't physically cover all the books we wanted to. So doing a list of new releases every month was kind of a a happy medium for that where you can't, you know, be reviewing 10 books a month, but you can talk about that they're coming out. So for me when it comes to finding titles for lists, there is the maybe it's becoming more of a dumpster fire by the day, but Twitter is an extremely helpful one which for a lot of journalists they they twitter has been a extremely valuable resource for for various parts of the journalism industry i don't know how that's going to change in the coming months but that has been an extremely useful one for every reason from publishers tweeting about their books to book bloggers going there to share their video roundups which you know You never want to crib someone else's list, but it's always good to cross-check in case there's something you might have missed that you really wished you didn't miss. I would say the common fantasy and science fiction book spaces, so like Twitter, r slash fantasy on Reddit, those kinds of places are the booktube channels like Daniel Green's a great resource, those sorts of bloggers. So that's one. Another, and probably the I don't want to say the more useful. They're they're all useful in their own ways. But we also do have a fair amount of contact with publishing PR, com- uh, not companies, the, the PR department at publishers. And that ranges from big five publishers to smaller publishers who reach out and say, hey, we have a book coming out. Would you be interested in covering it? Now, for big five and maybe some imprints that aren't necessarily big five either a lot of them will have like a catalog that they send. some do it quarterly some do it monthly saying like here are our releases for the spring summer january whatever and that is extremely helpful for me because then you know you have it all in one place so if you're curious what books you know tor or orbit has coming out in a given month It's pretty easy to scroll through their catalog and find out there's kind of like a hierarchy of how things are placed in the catalogs and that varies by publisher as well. But if you're really scoping releases, then you're probably going to read the whole thing anyway. But yeah, so those are the two main ones. I'm blanking on what the third one is right this second. The third one's probably being contacted. That was what I was going to get around to. Because when you work with certain publishers, you you end up kind of regularly getting their catalogs and things like that. But the flip side of that is people reaching out on a specific book saying, hey... Is this book something you'd be interested in, and bringing it to your attention that way?
0: Yeah. So you mentioned that curating lists works a bit differently for your site than for, say, Publishers Weekly or Kirkus or the the places that give us trade reviews. And I just wondered if you knew a little bit about that and how how they select books, whether they have pressure to look at lead titles or pressure to review them, or I possibly should phrase that just. If they're aware of buzz, if trade reviews are aware of buzz, and if that kind of impacts whether they're willing to look at books.
2: (laughs) That is a really interesting question. With trade reviews, I'm not super familiar with their ecosystem in terms of how they pick the books. I I do have a friend who reviews for Kirkus, so I can tell you that in terms of your... uh, Scott, you mentioned this a few weeks back in one of your episodes when you were talking about how you got one trade review that that kind of poked fun at your title that you didn't even choose. And it's like, well, you never know who's even reading these things and writing them. And that, to my understanding with trade reviews, that is the case. I believe they, they take on freelancers and then they kind of a sign out books and there's no guarantee that you'll be reading in one genre. It's kind of like you have a quota of books you get sent every month. and sometimes it's really random and they line up with your tastes and sometimes they don't. Now, in terms of buzz, I don't know how much that is a factor, but the the flip side of that, I would say, is if they are being made aware of titles in the same way, that like a site like Winter is Coming might be being made aware of titles from publishers, then there is certainly a chance that publishers are reaching out more about their lead titles or sending out an extra mailing blast to make sure that they're aware of their lead titles. And then, of course, once you get into like the Kirkus that libraries get, where they're, you know, often choosing out their titles to order for the library, the starred reviews in those, um... Are something which is kind of easier for people to refer to or automatically draw the attention, especially if it is a genre that, like, the librarian's not familiar with. Well, it's easier to look at the starred things and think. Maybe these are some, some books we should have. I'm not saying that there's always a correlation between lead titles and starred reviews in something like Kirkus. Obviously, that's not the case. But having also looked at like those magazines for libraries, like helping like one of my local libraries pick out sci-fi fantasy titles, like there's often a correlation there between the ones that you see getting the stars and the ones that are lead titles. And it's hard to think of that as totally a coincidence, uh, but I would kind of speculating i think to go too deep on that
1: yeah that that makes sense but i mean even just understanding that it doesn't necessarily have to be a pay for a pay for play situation right pay to play but that there might be some influence just just because a publisher might be sending out better materials that might better match a book with a reviewer that cares about that kind of book and and likes that kind of book i mean that makes a big difference and makes a ton of sense
0: uh, i also saw online when i was looking into trade reviews a bit quite a lot of them will say because you can submit to them it's like an indie or it has submission guidelines if, if you're a publisher and or you know you need to look it mm-hmm. up um, they prefer to have physical copies a lot of times which if your book didn't get arcs, oh, you're sending in an e-copy so that might default lower its priority and also when you get the arc so I know that like especially after COVID um they were really backed up apparently and it was taking ages to get trade reviews so if you were getting those marketing materials out early and in hard copy which lead titles tend to that probably helps you to get read I would imagine speculating
2: (laughs) yeah I mean I so this is something I've been thinking about, like, literally since you guys started your podcast, just this idea of, like, do physical arcs matter? Like, you know, we're in this digital age where where people are also reading e-arcs. Um, but in my opinion, yeah, they totally matter. I think you're absolutely right that it might give people that extra bit of incentive to to read something, to get a physical thing in the mail is obviously a slightly more exciting thing than getting sent a link. I, You know, there are aspects to people sharing pictures of physical arcs on social media. Um, I will say for me personally, I always request physical arcs if I can. Um, That's not to say I won't read a digital arc, but there's a like, I don't know if other people ever think about this. This might just be me being a weirdo, but like I spend on average like eight to 10 hours every single day on my computer. So turning around and using an e-reader after that, sometimes like I physically cannot do it like because my eyes hurt. There is an accessibility thing there too. And I personally, I wonder when I see a title from a publisher I know does physical arcs, Like, it's different if you're at a small publisher, you're self-published, but if it's a large publisher that does arcs and they have a title that they're not doing arcs for, I'll often wonder why. And I don't know if other people wonder that, but I I certainly do.
0: I've really noticed, actually, when I started getting a lot of books to Blurb, I used to always take e-copies before, because I used to review e-copies on NetGalley when I was a reviewer before I was a writer. Mm -hmm. And now like my kindle is just full of all these really badly formatted ebooks that i am reading but it's (laughs) i've started requesting the physical copies because there's nothing else that the physical pile of books guilts me into reading more of them so something about that presence is is there
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, maybe that's a plus and a minus in that way. I'm like staring. I have my shelf of arcs like right here that I'm side-eyeing as we talk about this. I I think there are advantages to digital arcs too. Like there's an accessibility element there as well, right? Because anyone can get the link anywhere in the world and have it immediately. I use them especially when I'm on deadline or there's something I want to review that I just, you know, I don't have time to wait for a physical arc to actually show up at my house. So I'll dive right in on the digital. Yeah, I I definitely think there is something to that uh, that idea of they matter <laughs> if you're with a large publisher, small one less so.
0: Just to quickly go back to the star thing, I think Scott, you had a question about that, but I can't quite
1: remember it. Yeah, it, it, I I already hit it. The just you know, and and I don't think we're gonna I don't think we're gonna uncover any more secrets about how Publishers Weekly and Kirkus and whoever. Uh, <laughs> turn out starred reviews right but I, I do think the connection between yeah. you know n- knowing how they're they're doled out uh, to reviewers things are starting to click uh, a little bit but yeah daniel i mean with respect to arcs i'm the exact same way right and a i, I think they matter just generally it, it's pretty easy to see the buzz that they generate on twitter and instagram and and elsewhere when publishers sending out arcs and not just arcs you know i uh, i don't know if you feel the same way but i've been somewhat impressed with the other materials that have been sent out or maybe if it's obvious that the publisher put a lot of effort and potentially money into really good cover art whether for the arc or the actual book or both uh, that has seemed to matter but yeah i mean i personally read Almost all physical copies, not just arcs, but books in general, for the exact same reason. Like I, I literally cannot look at a screen <laughs> after a, a day of trying yeah. to get things done uh, to read anything. So that that makes a ton of sense. It, I mean, I will next time I have a, a book out, I certainly will be pushing very hard for physical arcs, whatever kind of material possible, and I would recommend it to any and everyone that's got a book or or. Uh, wants their their book to get attention.
0: Yeah, and I'll just quickly reference. There's a uh, there's an episode by Print Run podcast, and they have a, an episode sure, about books books as objects, which I think is really interesting and and worth the time for people who are interested in that subject. And it goes into like what it is about a book being an object that has a kind of pull that, that draws people to collect them and, and just things like when I got an arc from a friend of mine her UK publisher is Daphne Press right and this this arc had gold foiling and it's shiny and it's beautiful and it Oof. looks you know so you put it on I think I've got it on my Instagram the the sun and the void and it's like it is literally is the shiniest book oh I've ever
2: those arcs had. are so <laughs> pretty yeah, like, yeah. I,
0: see, and you want it. You look at it. You're like, I want to be part of that. Yes. People want to be part of the. Even if you don't get the arc, you then want to read the book because you've seen someone else has a, a shiny golden arc. <laughs> so it's, it has the that
2: effect. That's a great example it's because. So I I saw a picture of someone with that Sun in the Void arc like a, a week or two ago. And I literally ran to my email to make sure that I had remembered (laughs) to request an ARC of that book. So, yeah, that is a great example. And, yes, of course, you know, people who have bookshelves, like, we're we're all kind of pack-radish, like, collecting things, people. And ARCs are, in essence, it's kind of like a collectible thing for, you know, someone who is just a fan of something or is reviewing it maybe it's your first arc or like a there might be some kind of emotional attachment there um i i do i don't think you know i do want to drive home too it's not like all hope is lost if you don't get physical arcs cuz there are plenty of uh, you know people who do primarily review digitally but i think in terms of like just as a signal of what a publisher is investing. It's definitely a relevant thing. And so maybe we can kind of segue into this a little bit, but for for media people and reviewers, there is a tangible benefit to covering things which are already getting a lot of coverage. Basically reviewing things which are already getting a lot of marketing push versus things which aren't. Because, you know, at, at the end of the day, Whatever outlet, site, blogger, like they all have their own metrics for success as well. And if a publisher is marketing something and you are writing about it, you're essentially like hitchhiking off of their marketing just a tiny bit because that makes it more likely that people are looking for a given book. And therefore that, you know, there's kind of like a tipping point where... It's like, oh, this is a good idea to write about this. Look, this is getting a lot of people talking. And then at a certain point, it's like, it would be dumb of us not to write about this because so many people are talking about it. When publishers are marketing a book, a lead title, it fills into that idea of it being a self-fulfilling prophecy of some books being chosen for success because the thing that is making the success is the fact that they are dumping a bunch of marketing behind it. Hopefully it's a great book, too.
0: This is something I was talking about, I think, with some of my agent siblings a while ago, the fact that it is so hard to get a book visible. So every time you see a book that's being hyped, and everyone says that book is overhyped, it's like, yes, you have to overhype a book to even get it to like a really low level of visibility. You know, When Babel came out, and it was, it was absolutely everywhere in book world. But if you step outside of our little book world, I think there were like one or two people in my real life circles who were vaguely aware that this book was coming out because they might have seen it once on a shelf and all of that that hype and that buzz is just to kind of claw into the general reader consciousness that a book exists it's so so difficult and it's weird because if you don't have that massive push you just you, it's hard to get seen at all
2: yeah yeah i mean i totally agree with that before doing as you know, writing, working at Winter's Coming, all of that. So I went to school for music business. I related quite a lot to Scott uh, Nick Eames's story on here when he mentioned, you know, working at restaurants and things like that. He, I was going to school for music and wanted a more stable career. And I chose writing. <laughs> um, yeah. So in terms of I went to school for music business, Something that one of my professors who was like an ex-New York City like record label guy said that really stuck with me was this idea that marketing is not to make someone run out and buy your thing immediately. It's, you know, maybe on the 17th or 18th or 20th time they hear someone talk about it, they'll run out and buy it. But it's like to plant the seed. So you start associating, oh, maybe that's a thing I want. And then the more you hear about it, the more likely you are to actually w- get it. But it's really not designed to immediately turn people into immediate buyers like it is exactly what you're talking about, where it's something being overexposed and overexposed until people think, well, I need that or I can't not get that. I think we kind of get into like a little bit of tunnel vision in, in the bookish communities at times. Um where it feels like these things are being super overexposed, but then, like you said, Sunny, like, you step out of those communities and people are like, who's this upstart Brandon Sanderson? He wrote some books, I guess. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, who's heard of that I've... guy? Well, everyone in bookish communities, but, you know, it really varies once you step outside of those spaces.
0: Great story, which I might cut because in case it's too long. I won't make it long, but basically... <laughs> story Um, time my my Harper editor UK Harper side wanted to send book eaters to Neil Gaiman for a blurb right and I I had no illusions that he would read it and as it turns out we never heard from him so we either hated it or he just didn't get around to it it's fine but anyway I told my parents about this I I said um I told my mother that like Neil Gaiman was going to read my book and possibly blurb it and she got really really excited which surprised me because she's not normally that interested in my book stuff and she was like oh so is he going to sing a song about it and i said (laughs) i I don't think neil diamond sings (laughs) and she we were kind of looking at each other in confusion and then she ran off to find my dad and she said sunny says neil diamond is going to blurb her book so because she'd misheard me on skype so um and I, and when I explained, I was like, no, no, it's not, not Neil Diamond. who I didn't know who he was. And she didn't. It's, <laughs> it's Neil Gaiman. And she said, oh, right. Who's that? And then I explained. And she said, oh, right. He's just another writer then. I was like, yeah, Mom, he's he's no one. He's just another writer. Don't worry about it.
2: <laughs> and he didn't
0: blurb it anyway. But it just really reinforced for me. It's like, the, you know, he's a titan in our genre and in mainstream fiction. But my parents don't read, my mother doesn't read fiction. She's just like, who's that guy? He's just some loser she just writes books, you know?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's a, such a great, that's one that's hilarious, but it's also like, it's the perfect example, because like, who doesn't know who Neil Gaiman is? Well, I I guess once you step outside of people who are avid readers who are in these genres, then less people. Um so George R. R Martin has talked about this quite a bit which uh, one of the side effects of my job at Winter's Coving is I have an encyclopedic memory of random crap George R. R Martin has said throughout his career. But talked about like how basically he was still an anonymous writer up until Game of Thrones got pretty famous and that was the only point where he reached a point where it was like he gets recognized in airports now. And that's because he was on like late night shows and things like that. I saw John Scalzi talking about this recently on Twitter too, where, you know, he's famous in a very small circle. Like if you go to cons, people will recognize him. But the minute you step outside of that, he's just another person who's not getting recognized at all. And the average person doesn't know who he is. So yeah, fame is so relative.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even with... Martin, I, I wonder if that started before the show came out, right? Because I've been reading his books forever and not a, and, and most of my friends growing up and even now uh, and all the people I've worked with, et cetera, none of them have really been readers or at the very least not sci-fi and fantasy readers. And Martin, before the show came out, Martin didn't even register for them. You know? Uh, yeah. Nobody looked at that and said oh yeah how's that and i mean like i've given i've given people books uh by some of the biggest authors in fantasy and they won't even pick it up because to them it's like, oh that's that uh weird nerd book that scott likes and so they just leave it on their shelf or or give it away or whatever but yeah i mean
0: <laughs> i mean 15 years ago when i was still at uh silk or netland white tower places like that one of one of my, like, online friends who lived near George R. Martin at the time just kind of walked over to his house and was like, hey, can I do an interview? And he did. And you couldn't do that now with Martin. <laughs> but at the time, it was like no. not that many. You know, he was in our fantasy world and not outside that. Um, yeah. Oh, I should ask him whatever he did with that interview. But anyway, <laughs>
2: good yeah. luck doing that now. Yeah, pro- probably got the cops called now. But it, I mean... You know, talking about like midlist and lead titles like Martin, like he was a midlist author, I believe, who kind of just broke out of it by being tenacious, quitting for 10 years and then coming back and writing more books Um, because he had one book, The Armageddon Rag, that failed so badly that he basically decided to go write for TV for a decade and then came back and wrote Thrones
0: he's got a great sci-fi series about a grumpy old man who travels the universe with a ship full of cats. And That's I don't know why that any... wasn't.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I,
0: what, Why is not that not his breakout novel? I don't know. People are weird, but instead they want to watch game of Thrones.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, good. a it's lot fine. of his work, it, it's such a good, you know, like reminder of that. Often the success of a book is not always dictated by its quality because Martin had a lot of great work before Thrones. Like you said, like tough voyaging, those stories are great. Um, his vampire novel, Fever Dream, is excellent um, and, you know, is basically a relatively unknown novel at this point. Like, you, you, I can probably count on one hand the amount of times anyone has ever brought up Fever Dream to me. So, like, it's, great, it's a great book.
1: Yeah, I'll look it up. So maybe backing up a, a little bit to you know, this this idea of now we've we've pretty firmly established that sci-fi and fantasy readership is a very uh crowded but uh probably siloed off group of people. And we've we've talked about, you know, how it's advantageous for people to reviewers to jump on books that have have a lot of press, etc. So beyond things like physical arcs and having a lot of support from your publisher Is there anything in particular that you look for or that could be helpful from the publisher or author's perspective that could influence somebody's personal taste? Like, Is there anything that you've seen that works well for communicating the particular themes or uh, style or whatever, or is it really just a matter of finding enough people who will start reading it to communicate that organically?
2: I don't think there's any substitute for the organic word of mouth. I mean, I think a lot of the publisher outreach is kind of designed to facilitate that, uh, which I guess we can debate whether it's really organic if a publisher is for uh, facilitating it. But... Just in terms of them reaching out to bloggers and people they're hopeful will talk about it, that's in essence like facilitating word of mouth. I think in terms of just things authors can do, and publishing PR people, I think this is relevant too. I think leading (laughs) with being a reasonable human being is always the best policy, which feels like such a redundant, stupid thing to say. But I do think it's a pitfall that a lot of people fall into where it's, you know, reaching out to someone about book coverage and it's like, hey, I wrote a book. Uh, I don't know if you remember, There, there are those things with pages and you are a book reviewer and you happen to review the things with pages. Would you review my book? And really, like, if you can show that you understand who you're talking to, that you like, you understand the needs of their outlet or their sites. It's kind of the same as with querying in that way, where you're just way more likely to have success. And this is if you're actually reaching out. Um, so that's slightly different than just like building like hype or whatever. But in terms of reaching out, I think showing that you have an understanding of the. The medium you're pitching to, the people you're pitching to. An example that I have from fairly recently, someone reached out to me about a book that my gut reaction was, I I don't think I have time for this one. But in their pitch email, they mentioned that the book was people like George R. R. Martin and Stephen King had had blurbed this author's work before. And they had a series coming out on X streaming service. And those two things told me that they weren't just sending me a blanket pitch email. They understood parts of our market well enough that they were that it was an intentional pitch. But I think as far as how you conduct yourself online as a general human being is also really important. Like if you're just plugging your book all the time, you're probably going to make people want to close their ears and eyes whenever they see you talk about it versus a, a recent example I'll use was I saw Kate Elliott talking about her sequel to Unconquerable Sun, And I happened to need a new book for a list I was putting together for that month and immediately added it. And it wasn't a situation where anyone reached out to me. It was just seeing her talk about it, not in a, hey, everyone, come buy my book. But just I'm in this situation where I'm thinking about outreach and my book, Unconquerable, uh, it's not Unconquerable Sun, Furious Heaven, I think is the sequel, uh, comes out soon. And she was just talking about it. Um, I think just talking about your work to raise awareness and being active in different ways in these sorts of communities is a really good idea. Because you can't control the marketing outreach that publishers are going to give you, you know. um, So the things you can control are how you act and kind of the reputation you build for yourself as a human being and an author and totally agree yep
0: we're talking about connecting like kind of over social media is that right and also through email and stuff like that do you think that social media and platform matters particularly for fiction writers and or does that equation change depending where someone is and what type of publisher they have
2: i think it's really important to know the different who you're talking to on different social medias. So like most of the examples I'm giving are really relevant to Twitter. And the reason that I'm giving them is because a lot of industry people hang out on Twitter. So it's less so like you're hyping to fans and prospective readers. It's almost more of networking when you're on a platform like that versus something like Facebook where you're, you know, plugging your book primarily to fans. Um, So does it matter? I think um, I have seen a lot of people kind of say, you know, you need X amount of followers for publishers to give you a chance. And I think that particularly is garbage because most of the the debuts and even larger authors like often have a shockingly small amount of social media following. To draw from a personal experience for this, when I was going out on Sub, my agent, who I'm no longer with, uh, we I was basically advised you have to be on Facebook. It's really important that you're on Facebook. Publishers will care. And I've since kind of come around to the conclusion that that is pretty bad advice. Um, And that if you are, it's just important to know your audiences and where they hang out. So Facebook, for adult sci-fi and fantasy, like Since we talked about Brandon Sanderson, he only has 130,000 followers on Facebook, which sounds like a lot, um, but that's less than half his Twitter following. That's probably the smallest platform he has. When you start branching out to other authors, like most of the recent debuts for publishers like Orbit and Tor either don't have Facebook pages or very small Facebook pages, James S. A. Corey, who wrote The Expanse, has a publisher-run Facebook page that has like 30,000 followers. I, I don't know. I would be curious to know if you guys had to do this. When I went on sub, we had to put together a packet that said, here are the potential ways this author can reach on their own. And they did put social media numbers in there. And that was something I didn't know how I felt about at the time. Like, is that... Was that normal for you guys as well or did you just not even have to think about social numbers when you were going on sub?
0: I think we might have had different experiences on this and there might be one bit where Scott will have to actually cut his answer if he's a little too honest um, but <laughs> so I had a hun- okay. <laughs> I had 120 followers on Twitter when I signed with my agent uh, I had maybe n- not even a thousand I think when I got the the book deal with tour I no one ever really asked um if you have an obvious pathway, I think, so for example, like you know on Essa, I think they were hoping that her connection to lucas film would somehow magically make film rights appear, mm-hmm. so that was noted in her social media connections, but they seem to have kind of got over this idea that it makes a difference. Uh, I think the only time I really see it thrown around is is smaller presses where they're relying on social media marketing. So anything that you bring to the table is good for them. Or pubs who are looking to maybe shift blame for why the book didn't sell. And and they just tell you that it's like because you didn't share it on Twitter enough or something. And it's not true. Um, No. (laughs) I think social media made a difference, but it wasn't my social media. And I remember what was one of the podcasts I was listening to where this woman defined the difference between marketing and publicity, where she said, marketing is what you say about yourself. It's your message to the world. And publicity is what other people say about you. And marketing, you can control the message, and that's the bonus. But the the, the thing with publicity is it's more effective when someone else says it about you. So publicity has been good for me. I. I haven't done any marketing. I know Harper and Tor run ads and stuff, but the publicity is other people posting your book on Instagram saying, I got this arc, I got this this novel, I got this book. It came in my crate box. Um, here's a really pretty picture with like some skulls and candles around it. That's publicity. <laughs> and that made a difference, but it's not something I could generate myself um, because because it's easier to write a novel for me than it is to go and become an Instagram influencer.
2: Yeah. I totally feel that. It's a different skill set, right? And I I think you see that with like the booktubers who are now releasing their own books. It's kind of like they started with that skill set and now they're hopping over to to writing and releasing books. Um and yeah, I think expecting authors to be social media gurus is a is a tricky proposition because you know you only have so many hours in the day and what do you want them spending those hours on i i am curious i do want to hear scott's answer to this too but i
0: was thinking of the person in publishing who asked scott if he was attractive i guess in relation to marketing and
1: publicity uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh that might yeah that might uh. cross the line i don't, I don't uh i don't want to get anybody in that much trouble um yeah uh yeah that was interesting um i'm so to answer your your question though daniel uh directly without getting anybody in trouble i i think (laughs) that we do have a line here Uh, you know i i is this the line socials yeah, the, this is that is, well, I mean like yeah, I don't want to I don't want to call anybody out necessarily, no, but personally by name. But I mean, so in the submission process, no, none of that was mentioned at all. Was there maybe some confusion with me, so my real name as I've said on on air before, my real name's Scott Smith and I write under the pen name Scott Drakeford because it's a very common name and there's another author Slash screenwriter with that's publishing under that name. But when it came time to you know prep for launch with my publisher, they did ask like, "Hey, what are your socials? Do you have any like schools that you went to that might have strong alumni groups? Do you have any special interest you know that that has a strong following or that has a a, a strong um, niche that we might be able to market to?" So there are some of those questions, but I think all you really need to know about whether social media influences – well, social media followings at least uh, influence how well a book does is go look at a publisher's posts, right? Like I think some publishers might get a little bit of run on Instagram or whatever, but despite having hundreds of thousands of followers – some major imprints, again, not saying, not naming any names, but some major imprints have huge followings and their posts will get like 10 likes, you know? It's pretty obvious that just gathering a following and building a platform doesn't do the trick. There, There has to be that organic generation of PR like y'all were talking about.
0: I do think it's possible to do because one of the things that I learned about when we started getting translations for book eaters is that a lot of the foreign European presses do cultivate readerships and that my agent was explaining they have a little bit of a different culture with it so I know the the Spanish publisher Spanish language publisher for book eaters is called Oceano and they like they call their readers sailors and they kind of interact with them and they they get them excited for new releases and it's very much a thing you know the way people might be fans of a football club you might be fans of like a publisher so they have some of that going they understand it'll cultivate that i do see that as well with like angry robot and kind of um some of the the mid-sized sci-fi and fantasy presses who have to do that so that they do and they're you know effective at it but it can be done <laughs>
1: i mean i think there's brand mm. loyalty uh, i'm not saying that there's no value in in the brand right
0: oh yeah i just
1: don't think that people on so yeah on social media give a shit about you know that following necessarily and i don't think i don't think it's the ticket to success it might work for some but it's certainly not a a silver bullet
2: i think more people shoot themselves in the foot sorry gone (laughs) no no i i want to hear what you were gonna say because i think i agree with it i think
0: more authors (laughs) shoot themselves in the foot with social media than then create a platform that does anything to move their sales because i feel like every other day you see someone on twitter who's just said the dumbest fucking thing since i don't even know and (laughs) you're like why did you do that and like they're human and whatever and and sometimes they deserve it sometimes they don't but basically people just really stick their foot in it and they get caught out and they're out there trying to build platform but if you're not media savvy you're not social media savvy it's really difficult to do well you're just on this constant tightrope
2: yeah I mean I think there's a fine line between uh, building your audience through you know posting and becoming a PR problem because you said the wrong thing um and one of the very first friends I made on Twitter I then watched combust on Twitter and this was like a couple of years ago basically exactly what you're talking about, putting putting their foot in it and saying something that they then regretted that ended up causing them to split with their publisher and all this stuff. I, I do think there are definitely things to be mindful of in terms of how you're conducting yourself. It's just important to remember that if you're hoping people will get referred back to you or, you know, outlets will cover your stuff, like, I don't want to say, like, don't be embarrassing on social media. Like, how do you measure that? You really can't. But just be mindful of if you're is this something you're using personally just to vent about whatever thing you feel upset about on a given day? Or is this a an extension of your professional profile? And if it is one, it's important to keep that in mind um, just so you don't send mixed. What Scott said about. Um, being asked about what platforms you had. did you Do you have an, a school that you went to with an alumni outreach? It's super reasonable, and I would assume fairly normal for a publisher to wonder what things you can bring to the table once you're at that point and you're d- discussing the launch of a book. But I I think there's a bit of a myth of you need a following to get publisher notice. And I think at least in science fiction and fantasy, I just... I haven't seen anything that actually supports that so that is different than you know once you're launching it saying what can we all do um to say 10,000 followers or bust bub it just doesn't happen i don't think
0: i've given up trying to debunk that myth because i've run into i used to run into almost every day in kind of facebook writing groups and i think it comes from (laughs) like a couple of the same articles put out by self-pub gurus or people who are just I don't know bloggers of, of unknown qualifications and it sounds good and it sounds plausible so people say it and they repeat it uh, even if they have no experience in the industry and, and don't try to publish and it just kind of gets around and I think every time you try and debunk it someone will pop up invariably in, in comments somewhere and say well my second cousin's Niece's husband twice removed <laughs> was told by an agent who was very, very big that you definitely have to have 15,400 followers on Twitter or you can't get a book deal. And it's like, oh my god, and everyone will just believe it like,
2: god, like not 15,350. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's legit though because it is misleading. And you know, ultimately, then if people think I need 15,000 followers. How much energy are they going to put into that that they should be putting into making their book really good? Because ultimately that's going to be the thing that will help them sell it more, in theory, hopefully. I definitely have, have some strong feelings about that too.
0: I have a theory that it has to do with control and that there is so much okay. in publishing which is outsider control. So even getting picked up by an agent is out of your control, of how you do on sub, how your sales are. Our followers are something we can control, and I do think there's a tendency in, in people to want to seize on that, to feel like if I can just get the followers, everything will be okay, and, and agents will notice me. If I can get the yeah. likes in a pitch contest, which don't usually pan out, by the way, then that, that I can get picked up and so on. And it feels like a really tangible thing that you can do, but it just doesn't necessarily do much. And I think it's maybe not helped by the rare examples that we do see that the occasional social media stars who break out and kind of (laughs) make a difference that way. But for most of us, it's not. Although you did mention some of your notes that TikTok can be a a, a thing. And we do know that TikTok makes some difference. I don't know if you want to seg into that.
2: A lot of both authors, publishers, um, booksellers have been finding success by utilizing TikTok. And a big part in my opinion, of why we're seeing such breakout success for people on TikTok is because TikTok is algorithmically oriented toward organic reach. Um, So not suppressing your posts um, and just sharing things out on trending hashtags. Whereas Facebook and Instagram specifically, and now Twitter, it seems, is going down this route they paywall reach so they they really do suppress organic reach because they want you to be paying for ads or boosts or their subscription but tiktok doesn't have that element yet so like for winter is coming for example we basically built and have a tiktok that over a couple of months went from total zero to I think it's just under like 10,000 followers right now. And that is entirely just from sharing things related to like House of the Dragon and Game of Thrones during the period when they were on and catching on with those sorts of trending tags. I remember seeing a another story a while back from an editor who I follow with one of the the big five publishers who posted a TikTok about this book that they had acquired, just kind of like cracking a joke about this book they acquired and like convincing their boss to get on board with this book. And then tweeted about this like a week, a few weeks later saying they saw, you know, An obvious effect on the sales from this, like that happened to coincide with this viral TikTok that was just totally unpredictably viral, not something she did intentionally, wasn't a marketing move, just hey, let me post this random TikTok and it took off. TikTok, if you are hoping for organic reach and breaking out in that way, it can be great. I would just, you know, as with any social media, just be conscientious of chasing trends because that can sometimes bite you in the ass.
0: My agency have this really great rule that uh, has actually saved me a lot because I have a big mouth and a hot temper, which is a bad combination on social media. (laughs) Um, (laughs) They they call it the 24 hour rule, which is anytime someone posts something which just pisses you the fuck off, give it 24 hours and see if you still give a shit. And 99% of the time I don't because my temper has burned itself out and it just, it stops so many things. from from spiraling you, you really don't want to oh start a dog pile on yourself it's on, on any platform That's great advice we were going to ask you know if you've had general advice for authors who are wanting to approach reviewers if possibly their publisher isn't doing that or isn't doing it in the way that they hope if there's a, a good way to go about it i know you mentioned being human but like is there kind of a format for reaching out? Are there lists? Are there people like, you know, can we go to our publishers and ask for lists of names and things like that?
2: I Well, I don't... Can you go to your publisher and ask for a list Ooh, I of names? I, and you probably should be able to. I don't know how <laughs> forthcoming they would be with that. It probably would depend on your relationship with your publisher, I would assume. I do think there's definitely value in... I would encourage any author's... Uh, wondering about that stuff to start making a list themselves, because, you know, with publishers, in theory, they should be, if you're with a big five, they should be the ones reaching out for you. Not to say that most reviewers would be averse to hearing from an author, but, you know, there is that extra bit of legitimacy when you get the email from a PR department versus uh, a random person saying, hey, would you read my book? So there is that. But you can't always control that kind of like we talked about and I've definitely heard stories of authors asking about who are we sending this to and kind of getting talked in a circle because publishers put out more books per quarter than they can probably realistically like fully promote not to say they they're not doing anything for them of course they are but that they can put their full weight behind I I think on once we talk about big 5 imprints they're probably putting out more books than they can reasonably do that with in a given span. There's no form type of email. Thinking about it in that way is something that can get you into trouble because I one of the best things I would recommend, this is tied to the being human thing, but also really just researching. Again, it's so similar to querying in terms of reaching out. Anytime I see people talk about having queried like 200 agents, My first thought is always like, how well did you actually research those agents? And I think it's the same once you start looking at the media space. Like it is more advantageous to be reaching out to fewer places, but making sure they are a really good fit for your work and that you understand their audience. Familiarizing yourself with what they do before you're pitching them is always a good strategy, I think. I would also highly 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 encouraged to not treat reviewers like they could become potential arc thieves if they don't read your book so i <laughs> if you if you are interested in this i would highly encourage you to go back uh <laughs> earlier in this podcast and listen to the episodes with the michael j and robin sullivan because she said a thing that made me outright cheer out loud when I heard it, which was when they were reaching out, they used Goodreads. And that is another great source. I do not personally use Goodreads a whole lot uh, just because of Amazon beef mostly, but I know I probably need to get over that hill at some point. But the the thing she said that stuck with me that I, that I loved was when they were reaching out for Michael's books, they would say, can we send you an eARC in hopes that you'll review it if you like it? not in exchange for a review in hopes of a review. Having that attitude of, I will be happy if this works out, but I'm not going to act entitled that since I have taken the time to email you, it, it you must do the thing I want you to do for me. But I think generally reaching months ahead of time is absolutely the way to go. As many months, well, not as many months, but I would say anywhere from five to three months ahead of time is best. If you're hoping for coverage, if if it's just like, hey, you do lists and I want to make sure you're aware of my book coming out, then you have more leeway because um, that's not a big ask compared to take the time to read an entire novel and review it or interview me or whatever.
0: If you don't have any more questions, Scott, I was going to ask If you have uh, any rapid-fire, quick advice for people, Daniel, and also a chance to plug yourself, if that's okay. We should do that every episode, but we sometimes forget.
2: (laughs) Sure. I feel like I've talked to a lot of people in the fairly recent past uh, where they had a book deal that maybe didn't go right and feel like that's the end. And I would just kind of encourage that if you are in this sort of career for the long haul to just keep doing the work you like doing, because you never know how that will come back around. And don't take it personally if people can't cover your book. Because often, I would say, for me at least, and this will vary person to person, but for me, like 90% of the time, whether I can cover a book or not has very little to do with the book and so much more to do with my schedule on on a given month at a given time um sometimes that means you need to choose between arcs uh as we're recording this i'm looking at may and knowing i'm probably going to need to drop at least one of the books i was hoping to get to because i just don't have time so like just knowing that that's not personal on your book
1: no i (laughs) i love that yeah no that was great and i agree for what it's worth
0: yeah and if you still want to plug yourself go ahead i'm just reminding you
2: (laughs) Oh, because um, you've yes. got a lot of different things going on. If you are into science fiction and fantasy books and television shows and movies, Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon, all those sorts of things, you can find a lot of my work and just a lot of great articles in general about those sorts of topics at WinterIsComing.net. At WickNet on Twitter, uh, there's also a YouTube, a TikTok, and a Facebook for Winter Is Coming, and I'm writing there. Pretty much most every day, I have stuff go up on the site. And we also do a live podcast called Take the Black on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, where we talk about nerdy sci-fi fantasy news and what we're watching and reading. And then if you're curious curious about my fiction stuff, I'm at daniel-roman.com. And I tweet at Roman Writing. And I'm occasionally on at Daniel Roman Books on instagram and i actively avoid that same handle on facebook where i also have a page with lots of cop webs thank you guys uh sunny and scott so much for having me on it's been an an absolute pleasure to talk to you guys
0: oh and that's been fantastic thank you so much we're really really glad to have you
1: yeah this was really wonderful thanks daniel
0: You've been listening to the Publishing Radio Podcast with Sonny Dean and Scott Drakeford. Tune in next time for more in-depth discussion on everything publishing industry. See you later.